Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Seth Stevens Davidowitz. He's a data scientist, economist, and an author. Imagine if you had access to millions of data points which tell you exactly what makes people happy, or makes people attracted to you, or what actually influences your child's outcomes in life, or the most reliable way to become rich. Well, Seth did, and then he wrote a book about it with all of his findings in. Expect to learn how you can conduct a survey to test different appearance styles to find out which is the best for you, which personality traits result in the happiest relationships, what activities will make you the most and least happy, the secret industries of people who become rich in America, how to hack luck using data, and much more. This episode is absolutely awesome. I love when people find a way to cut through all of the rhetoric and stories and narrative and just give you the data, just tells you what you need to do. You want to be happy? These are the things you should do and these are the things you should avoid. You want to be attractive? You want to find a partner that you're going to love for a while? You want to become rich? You want to become famous? This is what people who have done it did. And you can take that as you wish. It, it's so cool. The book is awesome. If you enjoyed it, it's linked in the show notes below. Don't trust your gut. Go and buy it. Seth's a great guy. And uh, this, this book's phenomenal. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Dude, your new book is absolutely awesome. This is this is what people want, someone that has access to loads of data to actually come up with and do. It's like, look, just just tell me how I'm supposed to live my life, please. Can you just give me the money ball for my existence? That would be great. Thank you. Yeah, that was the motivation for the book is that I le- it's a legitimately the book I wanted to read because I'm obsessed with self-help. Like it's a little embarrassing because I'm supposed to be such an intellectual and my my bookshelves are just filled with self-help, like how to get more powerful when I was single, how to date better, how to be happier, how to whatever. And I'm so frustrated because I read all these books and I'm like, I just don't believe, I'm like, this isn't really based on very much. You just like had an idea and you just told me it's not like up to the rigorous standards that I'd come to expect from, uh, you know, data analysis. So I'm kind of just like, okay, what would actually be like, what if you just explored all the areas of life and just said what the data tells you on it. And like, you, you know, like, uh, I've also noticed that a lot of self-help books, when they say they're evidence-based or like science-based, somebody just has a point they wanna make and they just Google some study that confirms it. And like, that's not how I wrote this book. I literally had no idea what I was saying on any of these topics. I'm like, I don't know what I'm saying about dating. I don't know what I'm saying about entrepreneurship. I don't know what I'm saying about happiness. And I'm just like gonna find the best studies and the best data and the best whatever, and then like, here. Uh, that's what I'm saying now. So, yeah. It does make other books feel uh, in inconsistent and insubstantial. You're like, hang on a second. What, what, what did you say? You just told me a nice story. Like, this is just, <laughs> it's just a story that happens to fit some eat, pray, love narrative that sounds nice. I think it's right. I thought, I think it's also a misconception that people just want to read stories. Like that's kind of a, a, an idea that they tell authors, you know, you just tell stories, tell stories, tell stories. And like everybody who's read my book so far, which I'm just going to say that you're supposed to say the name a lot. Don't trust your gut. Some people remember it, but uh, everyone who's read my book has been like, I've been enthralled by the tables and the charts, uh, which is like not, again, that's not usually what you put in self-help books like tables and charts dude seduced uh, by a nice bar chart that's what that's what people yeah, needed I think, needed I more think people of. are like people are like coming back with like very subtle points like the you know uh, the, where i'm like wow the closest everybody was reading the book was actually the tables and charts and and, and figures and i'm like oh uh, i think i think there were misconceptions about like the sell about the audience for books and what they actually want and i think people do want things that are a little meatier and a little more substantial and like a little more, you know, data driven. So I think a big reason for that is because it is quite counter to much of what gets put out there. There's a guy called Stephen Kotler who runs the Flow Research Collective, and he looks at the um, science of getting your body into a flow state, but he looks at it from a biological level. 
right? This yeah. isn't a philosophical level. This isn't how it contributes to your meaning. It's what is the actual brainwave state you're supposed to be in? What does this mean for your heart rate? What does this mean for your respiratory rate? What does this mean for your average body temperature? What are the exercises and the strategies that you can do to influence yourself to move you toward that? So, and you're like, it felt meaty is a really nice way to put it. You're reading this book and you're like, yeah, there's something firm for me to press up against here. And I think yeah. that I, I think that finding something firm, as in the data, is a a good place to to look. So you decided, off the back of said book, to do a nerdy makeover, a data driven oh, yeah. makeover. I'm not following the advice though, because uh, I'm too I'm, I'm nearsighted. Which I'm well, nearsighted is that you can't see far away. So yeah, so I did this analysis. There's all this evidence I didn't know about it until I started researching this book on how much your looks influence your success in life. Uh, so like, it's really depressing and dark. Like they show pictures of two candidates, uh, you know, gubernatorial election, Senate candidates, and they're like, which one looks more competent? And this is researched by this guy, Alex Todorov and others. And 70% of the elections they can predict just just based on the, the candidate who said, people said look more competent wins. And it's just like, that is so depressing. Like what? Like we're all in high school, basically. We can't. We've never escaped high school. And then he's done studies like who rises to the top of the military. It's people who just look dominant. And they're like, oh, th- th- there have been studies that baby that uh, people who look baby faced like are more likely to get off their crime, like not be convicted of the crime. You're kidding me. I was just like, no, yeah, no, not come on, not that guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I'm just like, are you kidding me? You're, I, I was reading this. I was getting like anger and angrier. But then I'm like, wait a second, there was this other study where they said that the same person can be rated very differently based on like little changes they make. So I'm like, wait a second, instead of just whining about how like, you know, unfair it is, you got to take advantage of this. You got to like find your best look. And I, I use this tool. Uh, yeah, it's a, the ner- <laughs> probably the world's nerdiest makeover. Uh, FaceApp is this like app. Everyone can play around with it. You can kind of change around what happens when I have glasses, what happens when I have long hair, what happens when I have a beard, what happens when I have a mustache, goatee, you can just change everything about you. And then I ask people to rate like how I look, how competent I looked in these different things. I use this service. The best way to do it now is a site I didn't know about, photofeeler.com. Anyone could do this. Like you can just match what I did. So you go to FaceApp, you create different versions of yourself. You go to photofeeler.com and you can get ratings on them on how you look on various dimensions. And then for me, there were these like really clear patterns that everyone rated me way more competent when I had a beard and had glasses. Uh, and it was just like stark. It was like striking the glass and anything else, striking the day and everything else I did did matter. Like uh, you can add like a, a smile, uh, different smiles, no difference, different types of glasses, no real difference. Like uh, even when I shaved my head, it wasn't even that much worse, uh, which I may be heading towards because I'm going bald. Uh, so, I, so that was encouraging. I'm like, thank God. I'm like, what if I'm like a six on confidence and then with the shaved head, I'm like a two. Um, then I'm really screwed because baldness is coming fast for me. Uh, so, or I guess if I, based on that, then I would have gotten like a hair transplant, I guess. Uh, but I'm just like, oh, there are these two things, glasses and beard, and they're just the huge difference makers for me. Uh, why, so did now, you want like, to, why did you want to optimize for competence? Well, <laughs> I say because like, a, I, I tested a few of them and they were all, they're all pretty highly correlated. So like I said, now that I'm happily in a relationship, if I was single, I'd go attractiveness a hundred percent. I think I didn't go for attractiveness too. Cause I was too scared of the results. I'm like, what happens if I put it in there and everyone's like, you're 0.1. I'm like, Oh God, <laughs> I'm going to really get in my head. <laughs> Whereas like I'm confident. maybe like I'll do a little better. I look a little nerdy. Everyone will be like, you're, you're confident. But I think, uh, you know, I, I did. I focused on confidence more because I'm in a re- happily in a relationship. I feel like I don't really need to win over, you know, people with attractiveness. And then I was talking to someone, uh, Stephen Levitt, the co-author of Freakonomics, and I told him this, and he's like, "No, no, no, that is your first mistake. You always need to keep the attractiveness high if you're a partner. <laughs> uh, don't get, don't, don't get, uh, you know, lazy on the attractiveness front just because you're in a relationship." Uh, but it was like. It was, it's very clear data. I really think everyone can do this. Like initially I had to use these tools cause I didn't know about photo feeler. I just found out about that recently, but literally face app plus photo feeler. Anybody could do what I did like really, really simply. And 
photo feeler also does a whole bunch of different traits. So they do competence and smart and like all kinds of different things. You get it back really quickly. So I bet you everybody will find out these little things like I did. Like it's just beard and glasses are like the game changers. Oh, you think that's for, for everybody that all of the women should have beard and glasses as well? That's just a no, universal no, no. panacea across the board that every woman get no, yourself. No I, think, <laughs> no, I think the point is that it's like the point is they're obviously going to be individual variation. That's why you got to do the study. So there are some people that are going to do well. You know, I think glasses and competence may be pretty close to universal. Uh, we are just so tricked by glasses. Uh, and like everybody just looks smarter when they have a pair of glasses on. Uh, but, uh, you know, but like beard, I think there's something about my face that I think is just like a beard, like kind of, I have like a full mouth. I think a beard kind of covers it. There's some like men particularly that beards are just like very good on like James Harden, the basketball player. I'm always like, why does this guy have this crazy beard? And then I saw pictures before he had a beard and he's like missing a chin. Dude, like, oh. have you seen, do you know Kazmat Chimaev? Do you know who that is? No, no. Uh, so know. he is one of these, he's an absolute animal in the middleweight division in the UFC. And this guy is, there's multiple series of videos talking about how he's a legitimate psychopath on YouTube with and he's like everyone loves him for the fact that he's just ready to go at all times and if you want to go and have a laugh google kazmat chimaev without a beard and it is he is missing a chin there is no chin there it is it is simply a beard growing out from his neck and you're like fuck dude he's so much more intimidating with a beard than without one so he's optimizing for intimidation you were optimizing for competence competence absolutely fine when i did attractiveness beard was got me a higher score as well. So I think their their competence and attractiveness are very highly correlated. Uh, usually the things, usually like a look is better on, on like every front. It's not like there's, you're, you're usually not trading off like, you know, one or the other. Usually like there's a look for you. I think it's pretty clear that glasses and, and beard is my, uh, is my look. Uh, what so. were the big lessons that you learned from data about being successful in dating then? Uh, there are like a lot of different lessons uh there okay so one of them is from i i love this people may have heard of it but i if you haven't you need to know it uh christian rudder wrote this excellent book dataclism and he made the point that the most successful daters are like the, the the very most successful daters are exactly who you'd expect they're like brad pitt and natalie portman just beautiful people and they just get like it's depressing how much better they do than the average person. Uh, like, uh, but then like, there are these, there are these daters that do shockingly well. And they're people with extreme looks like people who shave their head, like what heterosexual women who shave their head or have crazy glasses or blue hair or all these things. And the point is in dating, you want to be polarizing. So if you're Brad Pitt or Natalie Portman, you just want to be yourself and not scare anybody. Just like play it very safe let the goodies flood to you. But if you are not Natalie Portman or Brad Pitt, or you're not like conventionally the most attractive person, you got to kind of lean into some extreme version of yourself. And then some people will be totally turned off, but some people will be really into you. And that's kind of what's, that's all that matters. You just need some people to be really into you. And I kind of did that in my own life because I think it's not going to surprise anybody that like, I'm pretty nerdy. I mean, anybody who read Don't Trust Your Gut would be like, this guy's pretty nerdy. Like, uh, there's this one study where they list the happiest, they have a chart with the happiest, how much happiness every activity gives people. And I literally ordered an iPhone case with that chart on it so I can look at the data when I'm deciding what to do things. So I'm like the nerdiest, like I'm, I'm maybe one of the nerdiest people, you know, anybody's encountered. And I think when I was single, like a lot of nerds, I'm like, well, what do I do to, you know, I'm heterosexual to, you know, attract women. And I'm like, okay, well, I got to, you know, tone it down, be less nerdy, uh, be, you know, like, you know, get rid of the glasses, get, get like, you know, stop talking about the charts and the tables and the math and like, you know, learn, talk more about uh, what you're, you're, you're taught that uh, the average woman is into. And I think the data suggests the exact opposite like nerd it up, go all in on who you are, and then you'll just be polarizing. But you don't, in dating, you don't want to be like average to people. You want to be like the extreme, something that's uh, the most 
the most appealing. Well, because you're not optimizing for total area under the curve, are you? You only yeah, need a no. couple of winners. And yeah, and exactly. And you know, well, a co- I like how you think a couple of, of winners. Well, you, you've <laughs> got to have a variety, uh, right? Polyamorous. <laughs> no, I'm monogamous, so I was just looking for one winner. But uh, uh, but I yeah, and my uh, girlfriend, literally, she was uh, talking to her friends, and they're like, "What's your type?" And everyone's going through their type, like tall, dark, and handsome, this, that. And she's like, "My type is nerdy." <laughs> and, like that was her type. And she's not even that nerdy herself. Her type was nerdy. And then, you know, and here I am. If I had not played off my nerdiness, I wouldn't have, have had a chance. And I think the the thing that the other big dating thing is you got to put yourself out there way more. Uh, so they've done these studies on like what happens when people of different attractiveness or desirability ratings message someone else on, on an online dating site. So like what happens when a one messages a 10? on an online dating site. And before I saw the data, I'm like, this is a bloodbath. This is like a one asking out of 10. I mean, or messaging a 10. We're talking about like a one in a million, a one in a billion, like, come on, like that, that's not going to happen. And the data says for a heterosexual man, one asking out a heterosexual 10, it's like 14%. And for a heterosexual woman asking out a one ask, going after a heterosexual man, it's like 30%. So like when you actually do the math, the key to getting like if you if you want to date out of your league, which I don't necessarily recommend because I also have in a section how physical conventional attraction is the most overvalued thing in the in the dating market. But let's be honest, everybody's trying to like everybody is curious. How can I date someone who's way more beautiful or way more desirable than me? And I think it's a combination of being an extreme version of yourself and then asking tons of people out uh, because like. If you have a 14% chance on one go, then you actually do the math. If you ask like 30 people out, you have like a 98% chance. So like all you got to do is just keep on going after it. And a lot of people are going to be like, no, 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 no. And eventually uh, you're going to get your your yes. And then there are, yeah, there, there are other things. I could keep going. There are well, what what was the insight around physical attractiveness and happiness? Yeah, so they've done studies of like 11,000 couples and they tried to predict what uh, what predicts romantic happiness? So Samantha Joel led the, led this study, uh, and it's like the big. It's like a revolutionary study of romantic happiness. They they use machine learning models. There were eighty six scientists studying it. Uh, like eleven thousand couples. They had hundreds of variables, like anything you could could consider a test. And the first thing is it's very hard in general to predict who's happy. Like the predictive models are just way worse than you might imagine. It's not like uh, predicting. I don't know predicting like the weather tomorrow or something. It's like predicting the weather in like three years. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's harder than you'd, than you'd guess. But that said, the things that Matt, that do have at least some predictive power, whether, I, whether I'm happy with someone else, whether a particular person has someone else, the qualities of the other person that seem to have some predictive power are like these psychological variables. So secure attachment style, growth mindset, conscientiousness, satisfaction with life uh kind of like good psychological variables and the things that don't have that have like basically no predictive power are a lot of superficial things so conventional attractiveness uh, the height of your partner uh the the particular occupation of your partner uh many things like that and so all of the things that that online apps optimize for on the front end yeah yeah so like so yeah so it, it, I think like the, ma- the major insight from the data on, on dating and romance is there's just a total disconnect between what people are trying to, like what people are swiping for or trying to uh, date and what actually makes people happy. Uh, you know, will people change based on knowing that? I don't know. Uh, I think it may be coded in our DNA that we're drawn to like beauty and, you know, height and status and uh, but like if, it, if you can, I really do recommend, uh, overruling some of those instincts because they're really not a path uh, to long-term happiness. And like, the other thing is you have to think is that the competition for these traits is so enormous that like, even if you win over someone, like if you, if you win over someone who is this, you know, great beauty or a woman, every, every woman's there, I think the data is. 
85% of women, or I don't remember the exact number, have like six foot or above on Bumble or whatever it is. It's some insane Which I think is only 14% of men in the US. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's like, and like, uh, so the competition for these people are, are is ferocious. And you have to think that if you, first of all, if you try to date these people, you may spend a huge percent of your life single and complaining that you're single. Like I think a lot of people who are perpetually single, they're trying to date the small number of people that everybody's trying to date. Uh, and number two, if you do win them over, you may find that they are like, that there's a reason that they were single, even though they have all these traits that everybody's desiring. So maybe their psychological traits are a little bit, <laughs> Uh, subpar. Well, I would love uh, to really see. I would love to see the um, physical characteristics mapped with the psychological traits. You know, what are the correlates between are taller people on average more conscientious or more industrious or oh, yeah. more balanced? Because that would be fascinating to see. Because it it could be, it actually could be that in order to be with someone who's hot, you need to sacrifice being with someone who's psychologically. It's probably not likely, right? They're probably pretty just randomly spread well, but that could be the case i think if you're not hot and you want to date someone hot then you probably do have to sacrifice <laughs> yeah but you so, know if you're like if you're hot yourself then you're probably like okay you probably you know it's probably it's somewhat of a market uh you're probably in, in better in better you can always uh, date across and down yeah well the the interesting thing there is what what you're kind of saying is similar to what john Berger says in uh make the first move where it's 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 not lowering your standards. It's changing what your standards consist of. Because what you're saying is that what you think your standards should be aren't what they should be. You're optimizing for the wrong parameters. What you're optimizing for is something like height and job title and a bunch of things which aren't going to impact the thing that you ultimately want, which is long-term relationship happiness. What you need to do is reset that. And by doing that, you actually open up an entire new market, which is less competitive, potentially untapped, and significantly more linear between where you are and where you want to be in terms of happiness. Yeah, but nobody wants to hear that advice. No, it's shit, like, it's shit dating me. advice. How do I get the hot yeah. person? How do I get the, how do I get the fitty? Which I told you, the way to get the hot person is to be an extreme version of yourself and ask out lots of people. And the, only, oh, the other thing I didn't say is take advantage of similarity. So... Uh, People are incredibly drawn. This is also shown in, date, in uh, dating apps to people who are similar to themselves, like on every trait you can imagine. So race, uh, people are drawn to people who are similar to themselves, uh, religion, uh, like height, height, height to some degree, uh, even like college. People don't just want to date someone of a similar education level. They like show a bonus to someone who went to, the, to their exact same university, uh, even if it's like relative to someone in a sim so similar ranked university uh that you know, there, there's and then oh my favorite example of this is we're 11.3 percent more likely on online dating apps to match with someone who shares our initials uh which is so ridiculous like come on initials like sharing your initials is not the path to long-term happiness but so so i think there's a lot of irrationality in that but you can take advantage of that in that try like if if you share your initials with someone definitely ask them out because you have this bonus all <laughs> oh, right you've got like the multiplier that's the 11.4 yeah. percent multiplier on that oh well she's a she's a nine out of ten but she does have my initials so if i take that she's actually only re she's like a a, a parameter adjusted eight and a half with when we account for the the name bias but yeah and i think i learned this in my single life where i am jewish and, but I'm, I'm not religious at all. And I always pride myself on not caring about uh, religion. Like I would be happy to date somebody of any re religious backgrounds, any cultural background, whatever. It's not something that I view as very, very important to me. But I did kind of notice that the quality of my dates were always higher with the Jewish community than the non-Jewish community because of this similarity bias. So even if I don't care, like even if it's not a preference for me, I can take advantage of the fact that it's a preference for other people. And I should probably be more likely to go to like a singles event for Jewish people than a singles event for non-Jewish people. Cause in the non-Jewish singles event, I'm going to be 
a five or whatever, but yeah. the Jewish thing. That Jewish privilege, man. Jewish seven. privilege in the Jewish no, it's not, <laughs> I know no, what you it's mean. Pri- it's, it's, it's Chinese privilege. privilege in the Chinese event. Yeah. It's Asian privilege in the, yeah, I understand. Yeah. And it's like, it's true for Asian males as well. There, I talk about the, there's a huge prejudice against Asian males in online dating, uh, but there's much less pre- prejudice from Asian women in this, in, in this group. So yeah, it's, it, it's a privilege that like, you know, yeah. <laughs> Again, my major advice is care less about these superficial things and just try to find someone who's like really nice and could make you happy. And if you can get to that mindset, you're going to find dating way, way easier. Uh, But if you want to date like a hot person, then you have to use all these strategies and and everything that I think are are justified in the data. Use your privilege uh, is is one of them. (laughs) (laughs) What about what makes people happy then? You looked at that. Yeah, so... Uh, what makes people happy? I, I've, I, there's, I, I read like a thousand studies on happiness and a lot of them, even ones that are really famous, I'm like, these studies aren't that good. They, they like interview like a hundred undergraduate students and they're like, so what makes you happy? I'm like, like, how, how should I know that these hundred undergrad students or anything like anybody else, you, you're not like doing experiments. It's just was very underwhelming. But there are these new projects, which are really cool. They're called experience sampling projects. And they basically ping people on their smartphones. And they say, "Who? what are you doing? Who are you with? And how happy are you? And they built a data set of like 3 million happy points. The biggest one, Mappiness. George McCarran, Susanna Brado, 3 million happy, uh, data points. And there are all these cool studies. That I get so excited because I just, as I said, very, very nerdy. So I'd like read one of these studies. They're like... People are happier, the same person do the same activity, the same people are happier when they're in nature by a lake, or they're happier when their environment is beautiful, or they're happiest going for a hike or having sex is the number one happy activity. And I'm kind of like, I was telling my friends this because I was working on the, the chapter, and I'm like, you know, did you hear about this cool study? And they're like, do we need scientists to tell us this? <laughs> like, th- that's so obvious. Like, all these things that you're saying are painfully obvious. And I think there's profundity in the obviousness of the research on happiness, uh, which is that the things that make you happy, like if you look, I have the happiness activity chart from Alex Bryson and George McCarran uh, in one of my, and that's what I recommend people get as an iPhone case or hang it on your wall or whatever. And you look at that chart, it's almost like a chart from our hunter-gatherer days. It's like people are happy, like, you know, yeah, having sex, taking walks, hunting and fishing, uh, gardening, like just like these very outdoors, simple activities. And the things that are really low are these like very modern things, like waiting on a line, uh, dealing with a bureaucracy, working, uh, uh, internet, social media, very, very low computer games, really, really low. When you actually ping people, how happy are they? They rank very low. So I think it's good to keep in mind, like the simplicity of the things that make people happy. And if you're not happy, uh, oh, I, I end the book, I say, What's the data-driven answer to life uh, based on these 3 million you know, happiness points and, and, and all this, this new data? And I go, the data-driven answer to life is to be with your love on an 80-degree and sunny day, overlooking a beautiful body of water, having sex. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and like, which is, okay, not rocket science. It's not like they, you know, scientists have found some like gel you put on yourself or some website you visit that's like the cure to happiness. It's these very old fashioned, simple things. And I do recommend to people who are not happy, like think about how far your life is from that, those simple things that from the data driven answer to life. So like how, how much time are you spending in nature? How much time are you spending on, on the internet in comparison? Uh, how much time are you spending with the people who make you happy are friends and romantic partners. And like everybody else just doesn't make you happy. You so had a... You, you had a list of underrated activities, the things that tend to make people happier than they'd predict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exhibitions, yeah. museums, libraries, sports and exercise, drinking alcohol, gardening and shopping or errands. And then the overrated yeah. activities that make people less happy than they think. Sleeping, resting, relaxing, computer games, watching TV, eating and browsing the internet. I'm surprised, and I, I was really surprised when I looked at the list of activities, that playing with pets wasn't higher. It's like maybe 15 I think, but dude, if you put a dog in this room, I'm not doing anything for the rest of the day. 
Like that's me. That's me and the dog. Someone, oh, you want to have some sex? It's like, no, sorry, I'm with the dog at the moment. So again, there's individual variation in this. Having sex with the person. No, don't do that. So um, drinking alcohol was an interesting one. And I think that you talk about this. It's not necessarily just about what the activity does, but it's about what you're doing while you're in the activity, right? So drinking alcohol is often associated. It's uh, socializing. You're spending time with friends. You're having a conversation. Maybe you're also at a show or a comedy event or watching a gig or something like that. Yeah, I mean, drinking alcohol what you're getting with the pet example is there probably is individual variation in these and you don't have to, although I think a danger with happiness is we exaggerate how much individual variation there is. So there have been studies where they've they've compared introverts and extroverts and they say how much happier they are when they're by themselves or with other people. And both introverts and extroverts get the exact same boost from being with other people than being by themselves. Even though if you ask introverts, they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, I really like being by myself. I really like being by myself. So I think there's a danger. Like I'd, I'd be I'd be a little wary if I were you. Like I'd ask you to actually track your happiness and see if you're getting as much happiness from pets as you might think. Because I think we do tell ourselves these stories, tell ourselves these stories that are not always correct and, and that we're like unique and uh so i i i, I don't know i i mean yeah i, I think there's also different times then with pets so sometimes like if you're just like you know run, like uh yeah like petting them playing catch with them that's one thing if you're cleaning up their crap well you've uh, got it's, it's got to be spread across time right one thing that i thought that was interesting is there a tension between happiness and meaning so there's this Roy Baumeister study that, or paper that you've probably read about the tension that you have between these two different things. And there's a lot of things that we can do in the moment which makes us feel happy, sort of more on the hedonic side, but long-term doesn't necessarily create meaning. Did you think about this? I did. Like, I think, uh, yeah, you know, like, for example, work scores very low on happiness. And I think, you know, I don't know the answer from that is just quit your job and... yeah, Live or, in or, nature. Okay, so... Living, yeah, I don't, th- I don't, and and you know the the study that I, that I reference, mappiness, uh, isn't following people over three years and being like, you know, th- you you see kind of the in the moment happiness, and you don't necessarily see as much the, uh, you know, the long term things. I do think it's just, it's just you can. I think from these studies, you just can nudge yourself a little bit. Uh, in the direction of things that make people happy that that's kind of wise without sacrificing everything that's meaningful to you so don't you know uh you know if you if you if you read uh you know my don't trust your god or you read these studies uh i don't and and then yeah you immediately quit your job and move to a lake like i'd be like that may be taking the advice a little too uh seriously i you know i i think think more clearly but anybody who reads these studies and then the next weekend is deciding between sitting at home and playing computer games or going for a walk with your friends by the water and and is kind of uncertain. Like, I'd really recommend you went with your friends on the walk by the water uh, just based on the data. So what did social media use do to people's happiness? You looked at that in depth. Yeah, yeah. So, so there. So up in the mappiness study, the single there are 26 leisure activities. The single lowest scoring leisure activity is using social media, uh, which already says, wow, that's probably not so good for you. And there have been, there was a famous randomized controlled trial where they paid people to stop using Facebook. They randomly uh, paid a group of people to stop using Facebook and they reported an enormous decline in depressive symptoms. So I think there really is pretty, it's almost a cliche to say it, but there really is evidence that social media can make people miserable for the obvious reason that uh it's makes you feel like crap about your life uh you uh you know if, if you're seeing on facebook like the curated version of everybody else's life uh i actually in my first book everybody lies i talk a lot about that and the difference between like so- social media and real life and google searches and on uh, social media when people describe their husbands it's my husband is the best, the greatest, so cute and adorable. Uh, and that's like public, everyone's seeing it. And when it's on, when they're searching, my husband is, 
it's like my husband is a jerk, annoying, mean, uh, like a totally different view. Not of having sex with me. Not having sex with me. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's so like social media, like it's a cliche to say it, but it's just so true. It really is a dangerous uh, game to play uh, from from a happiness perspective. Why do you think it is that we're so bad at working out what makes us happy? Well, I think the world's trying to trick us. Uh, like there are people. I mean, social media, we're up against forces more powerful than we are, which are doing all these A-B tests to try to make the most addictive uh, products possible. And like, you know, I talk about money and happiness, and there definitely is a relationship between money and happiness, but it's a pretty small one. Uh, So like, for example, uh, there's a study by Matthew Killingsworth, doubling your income consistently has about the same effect on unhappiness. So going from forty thousand to eighty thousand dollars a year has the same effect of going from four million to eight million dollars a year has the same effect of going from you know like so basically you're in this kind of treadmill where uh, you need to keep on raising it by more and more to get a happiness boost. Uh, now of course, like at, I sound like a conspiracy theorist, and these ideas are almost so cliched, but they're just true. You know, advertisements don't want you to think that money doesn't matter. They want you to think that you need, uh, you know, fan, you know, you need the fanciest products, and uh, so they're kind of they're 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 kind of telling you, brainwashing you a little bit uh, on the things that that will make you happy. That you know, they, there also have been studies that uh, the purchases that make people happy, and it's very rarely stuff. It's usually vacations, travel uh, gives the biggest boost to happiness when you kind of ask people what are you doing and and how happy you are and and what what product are you using uh the only products that really are giving people happiness are trips uh and uh, other experiences uh, frequently with their romantic partner or their friends it's like museums uh, tours stuff like that yeah so so things like that could legitimately give you happiness because they're, they're usually not even that expensive uh but when people are using a fancy new electronic uh or you know wearing an armani suit uh, they're not really getting a big happiness boost. So I think that's an example. Why are we wrong? Well, like Armani probably spends more time advertising than like a nat- than uh, the Grand Canyon does. Uh, so, uh, you know, like, yeah, if you turn on the TV, you're not really seeing many advertisements. Have you thought of taking a camping trip in the Grand Canyon with your friends? <laughs> because Grand Canyon's a nonprofit. They're not even making money. Uh, so uh, it's it's. It's there, there. Yeah. So I think we're getting kind of uh, the wrong messages about uh, the path to happiness. What is it? There was that famous study that said above $70,000 a year, money has no impact on happiness. It seems like what you're saying here is that that's bullshit. It's not true, but it's 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 true in that the effects level off a lot. So it's not literally true that you reach $75,000 and then money doesn't improve things at all. Uh, but going from, uh, you know, 40,000 to 80,000 is the same as going from 80,000 to 160,000. So it's, it, it does, it, it is leveling off. It's just, it doesn't level off to zero. There is also some evidence that like, once you reach about $8 million, you also get a boost. Uh, and I think the, <laughs> what's that? The, I think the reason for that is that then you're reaching a point and uh, I've started since I moved to New York, I've met a lot of people uh, in that camp of $8 million and well beyond. Uh, and I think they're at a level where they literally have everything taken care of them for them. And you see the happiness activity chart uh, that, that I include in don't trust your gut. And like, there are all these miserable activities, you know, standing on lines, uh, working, housework, uh, housework, like they really don't make people happy. And when you reach $8 billion uh, net worth or beyond, you don't have to spend much of your life doing those things. That's the point uh, at which the driver or the assistant can stand in line for you, when the chef yeah. can cook you breakfast, when the housekeeper can clean up, blah, blah. Yeah. And then you really can spend most of your life just by a beach having sex. Uh, so. <laughs> in, eight, in 80 degree weather. All right. So talking yeah, about yeah. people that have stupid amounts of wealth, what's the best way to become rich? <laughs> So I actually, there's this study I read. Again, most times I read a study, I'm just like, that's like, I don't believe the study or I'm like, it's like they make these subtle points. You know, like if you read any academic study, 
Like usually they're just like making these very subtle interactions, like the theoretical point that only the researcher you care about. But occasionally you read a, a, a sentence in a study that kind of blows your mind. And I was reading the study is from the entire universe of taxpayers, American taxpayers, and they analyzed who's in the top 0.1%. So it's people making uh, $1.5 million a year. So these are people approaching the level where you can actually just be happy with how much money you have. <laughs> and they said that the typical rich American is the owner of a regional business, such as an auto dealership or beverage distributor. And I read that. I'm just like, what? <laughs> like, who thinks of an auto dealer owner? Like auto dealers are just like these annoying, like people with greasy suits who try to sell us like things we don't need. You're not really thinking of them as like rich people. And then beverage distributor, I didn't even know what that was. Uh, and it turns out that, uh, so like the, the, the likely, so there are a couple of points this. One is you have to own something to get rich by and large. So like if you look at the richest Americans, members of the top 0.1%, I think about 84% of them are making their money primarily by owning something, not by paying paid a salary. So there are some people who are just like get paid a ton of money. Superstar by, lawyers, by, by maybe, or stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, occasionally, but usually it's people who are owning something. Uh, and then you want to have like some sort of a good, and then you want to go in a, a good field. So there are all these fields that are awful. Uh, they've done studies of the quickest field businesses like that go out of the, the business, the field where the business goes out of uh, business quickest. And like number one was record store. Uh, the average record store lasts 2.5 years. Uh, in comparison, the average dentist's office lasts 19.5 years. And basically the problem is everybody wants to own a record store. And there, there are all these movies made about record stores. Uh, like there've been a whole bunch of record store movies. I think probably every time some that movie comes out, everyone's like, I'm gonna quit my job and start a record store. And it's just like, not a good path and uh, like toy stores, an awful business, clothing stores, awful business. Uh, 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 so there's some other ones. And, but then there are things you basically want a local, you want a local monopoly where like, so auto dealerships there, they have like legal protections where you kind of have franchise rights to service a particular uh, car company in your local region. And that's a big advantage in business if you have legal protections about against some random person coming in and stealing your business. And I think now, so I think you can't really read this, this that and say, okay, now I'll just start a local dealer. I'll, I'll now I'll just start an auto dealership because the whole point of auto dealerships is you're not allowed to start a new one and compete with these these people. Uh, but uh, I think you want to be thinking that principle of like, what's my local monopoly that allows like that allows me to avoid someone just, you know, stealing my entire business or offering a lower price or, or anything. And even I talk about in the book that like independent creatives may be a better bet than I had thought uh, being kind of like what you're doing, like a podcast host or what I'm doing, a writer. And it's, there are like a surprise. I was surprised by how many people are, entering the top 1% or even the top 0.1% as independent creatives. It's still a long shot. Most people aren't, but it's not like as big a long shot as I thought. And I think the reason for that is you have a local monopoly. So like if Chris, if, you know, as you're building your brand, you build a fan base and then like everybody, I could be on, 20 different podcasts, well, your fans are going to listen to your podcast and watch. I, I, you could ask me the same questions. You could be like, someone else could be, you know, should I play with my pet or, uh, have sex and, and uh, the, the exact same questions, but you're going to have a, an edge because you've built a fan base. Uh, and similarly, you know, I've written some books and people, I already have like people who bought, liked everybody lies my first book. And now they're going to give me kind of the benefit of the doubt and, uh, don't trust your guts. You have, you do have this kind of a little bit of a moat as a, a creative uh, that like, I think it's a better business than like pest control or something. Uh, <laughs> or you know, a record they're, they're, store. Yeah, yeah. Well, record store. Yeah. But like even, even some boring businesses like pest control, the data says like basically nobody's getting rich from pest control businesses. And the problem with being in the pest control business is you don't, you're, there's no way to build a local monopoly. Like, you're basically competing against everybody and everybody's just Googling for pest control and you have to, any profit you have, you're going to give away in, in ads 
on Google to try to get higher up on the list. Like nobody's like, you know, there's no name in pest control or there's no there's no legal protection. Uh, I really no like this- Seth's Seth's pest control because of the personality that he brings when he's getting rid of my cockroaches. Yeah, yeah nobody yeah, nobody and and like you don't even have have that many repeat customers anyway. So there's just like not Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to escape the perfect competition in that field. So like to escape perfect competition, you either need like a legal protection, a legal protection like auto dealerships have. You need a, like some sort of personal context being like really deep in a field or you need like a fan base well, and I a think brand. It, uh, yeah, it's a unique way to imprint a difficult to replicate competitive advantage. And you yeah. see this with uh, PTs. So my old housemate, Lewis, is a PT uh, and he moved, I think, to two or three different gyms in the time that he was living with me. And these gyms were three miles to one of them and then another five miles to a different one in around the city. And I was like, dude, there is no, I felt really bad. I was like, what if he loses all of his clients? Tons of his clients stayed with him. Now, hang on a second. You're talking about someone maybe adding two hours a week onto their commute just to go and train with you two or three times. And people were prepared to go. Brand new facility, different gym, different place, different parking, different route. And they stuck with him because it's a very personal experience, right? People aren't, you're not just being competed out of the market with this very transactional sort of pest control, get rid of my cockroaches thing. It's something very, very specific. Uh, Speaking of online coaching, what was that analysis about the best way to sell a product online if you were doing like a a seminar or something? Yeah, they did an analysis of like, uh, is it called Amazon Live? where they where people are kind of making a pitch to try to sell their product and it was a really amazing study they used artificial intelligence to translate all the pitches into like the facial expression they they analyzed the facial expression of everyone making their pitch and they had all kinds of other data about the pitch and they knew how much of the product actually sold and they found that the best way to sell your product is basically a poker face so like if you're angry or like depressed or like sad or like you know, then like, yeah, everyone's just like, I don't want to watch this person. But too many people selling their products have smiles, like these goofy smiles on their face and are too excited. And that actually backfires. So there's like this sweet spot where you're not showing too much happiness or too much sadness, a poker face. Uh, I think they say, the authors of the study say, uh, having a poker face instead of a smile is about twice as valuable as free shipping. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so... Uh, which is which is kind of counterintuitive. You don't really think like uh, you know. I think everybody's instinct is be like really excited for what you have, and I, I think there you know the, the study didn't get into like the the nitty gritty. I'm sure if you were had the poker face for like an hour, everyone would be like, show me a smile, like lighten up, relax, show some happiness. But it does show the danger that there is a danger in selling things of being too excited by your product and kind of being a little more even keeled uh, and and honest. Uh, can uh, can help. What about some of the myths to do with entrepreneurial success? Oh, yeah. So entrepreneurial success, there's this famous idea that entrepreneurs are young. So like Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook when he was 19. Uh, Steve Jobs was 20, started Apple. Uh, Bill Gates, 19, when he started Microsoft. These are kind of the most famous entrepreneurs in the world. And uh, I think people think uh, they're also the most famous entrepreneurs featured in me- the media. So they've done studies of the entrepreneurs in magazines and like the median age is 27 or something. So people just love telling the stories of these young people. When you actually look at the data of the entire universe of entrepreneurs, uh, the average successful entrepreneur is 42. And the odds of an entrepreneur succeeding increase until the age of 60. Uh, they look which shocks me like you don't think of a 60 year old like that's the, the total opposite of a successful entrepreneur and the other and like what it turns out is there's pretty much a formula for being a successful entrepreneur you just get really deep into the nitty-gritty of a field for many many years and then you branch out on your own when you're ready uh, which again goes against a lot of stereotypes a lot of stereotypes like just come from the outside knowing nothing when you're 18 and it's not true like if you want to be an entrepreneur, the best path is like, take it slow, under, learn about a field, work as an employee, prove your worth as an employee, and then like learn some, you'll learn something very particular about that field and you really know what to do 
uh, when you're ready. So, well, yeah, it's uh, it's such a compelling narrative that outsider's edge, right? The Elon Musk, he never did a thing before. So from first principles, he's going to do whatever. And you go, well, yeah, but the guys that Elon got to design batteries have probably yeah. spent their entire lives designing yeah. batteries. You know, he didn't yeah. get he didn't get some dude that did woodwork for the last <laughs> yeah. for the last twenty years. And uh, you yeah, talk think- you talk about uh, Paul Graham as well, and that what is it the marginal marginal edge or something as well? Yeah, yeah. power of the marginal. That's Paul it. Graham had this es- this essay, and I- I'm a huge Paul Graham fan. But he had this essay like that's an advantage to being a bad employee because if you're a good employee, you're not going to fit in in entrepreneurship. And it's not true in the data at all. The best entrepreneurs like earn the in the 99.9th percentile of income before they start their business. Uh, so. Uh, like I think a problem a problem with understanding how the world works is like some ideas are almost too compelling that they fool us. Like we want them to believe we want to believe them too much. So everybody wants to believe that you know oh tomorrow I can just like wake up and design a new car or uh, you know design some new chemical that's gonna do something really wild or uh, you know there are all kinds of examples you could imagine and it's kind of like. That's not really how the world works, uh, and it's it's dangerous to think the world works there because I think a lot of people screw up their lives, uh, you know, based on some of these ideas. That's uh, it's much know, less compelling though, right? Think about how sticky some of these stories are. This the stickiness of the story about the average age of a founder in uh, an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley is twenty seven and a half years old or something. That that's just so much more worthy of being pushed around than it's your mid 40s because that's what everybody would have thought you talk about this you say it's the the counter counter intuitive narrative it's so bizarre think about the fact that the thing that everybody expects to be the case work hard in one field get unbelievable specific knowledge then branch out on your own once you've got to the complete top having been a very good employee and wait wait a long time until you've got tons of experience like the fact that the media has managed to, to convince us that that is now a revolutionary story. So like, yeah. we, we were the idiots. But, but, but yeah, I, I think, but I think like listeners to this podcast, like you can overrule that. Like, I think when people have seen that they've been like, Oh yeah. Like they've made different decisions based on that. And you can just look at these charts and it's like so, something about looking at these charts just clears away the noise a little bit where I'm just like, okay, like now I, I know that I'm just being misled by the media and I'm going to just look at these charts and remind myself uh, when I get these one-off stories that are, uh, you know, try, like meant to confuse me and, and so sticky. So uh, I think you can, I, I agree that it's like, it's harder to get these ideas out, out there. But I think a lot of people have told me from reading that section that they are like adopting more of that mindset. They're not going to quit their job tomorrow and try to do something they've never tried before. And some of them are using this in an optimistic way where there are a lot of people who are 45 years old. And they've been an employee their entire life uh, and they've had success in that field. But they're just like, I'm too, it's too late. Like entrepreneurs are, you know, do it in their dorm 20 room years or, younger than me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I, how am I going to compete against all these youngins? And I think they'll be particularly drawn to the, this idea because now they can be like, well, now, now I got to think about, do I want to go off on my own and start my own business? How can people hack luck? Uh, yeah, so there are all these studies. The The best way to learn about luck is the art world because the art world is so much luck. Like there are all these like these depressing studies of what it takes to like of like what why a particular piece of art is really successful. There's so much randomness in it. Uh, but there are also these patterns that allow people to kind of allow these random opportunities to uh, come to them. So, for example, there have been studies that the quantity of art uh, of, of art someone makes is a massive predictor of how successful they are. So just putting a lot of work out in the world is like a, a, a massive predictor of success. And why is that? Well, because there's so much randomness in what particular work catches on. You just got to kind of flood the market and let luck find you. Uh, you know, if it's if if there's a if, if every piece w- of which piece wins is luck, then I want to be the one with a thousand pieces, not 10 pieces. Right. Because I have, uh, you know, 100 more opportunities to get lucky. 
Uh, and that's been found in many, many fields, this idea of kind of just putting more work into the world and allowing yourself to get more lucky, applying to more jobs, uh, asking more people out in dating. Like just, yeah, it's it's a crapshoot, but when it's a crapshoot, you want more lottery tickets. Uh, and the other thing that's been found, which is really cool, uh, in a study of a whole bunch of painters, uh, they were trying to predict what painter rises to the top. And they're like, the biggest predictor by far is how they present their work. And the ones who don't make it present their work to the same place, the same gallery over and over again. And the ones who do, they're like bumblebees. They're just like constantly, they're just like traveling everywhere. You, I can, I'll present there, I'll present there, I'll present there. Like anyone will have them, they go and occasionally they just stumble on some big break. Uh, and that's pretty profound. Uh, I think a lot of people make the mistake of just like not exposing themselves widely enough uh, to and exposing yourself widely can dramatically increase your chances of getting that lucky break. I was going to say, what do you think is the lesson for people that aren't artists? I think it's, there's probably a lot of similarity in that uh, the, the mistake of the artists who are presenting in the same gallery over and over again is they already didn't get the break there. So don't assume if you haven't gotten your break there, then you're going to get it next year or two years or three years. Uh, so kind of stagnating in a place where you're not rising or not where nothing much good is happening. Uh, you got to kind of, particularly when you're young, you got to travel more widely uh, to find uh, to find a break, I would say, would be the lesson I take from it. And uh, like traveling to places where you're more likely to get your break as well. Uh, you know, like uh, met many of the artists who didn't get their break were presenting in countries that aren't known for discovering artists. And similarly, many, you know, computer, compute tech people aren't in Silicon Valley. That that may be, you know, a mistake. Going to, going to the place where you're more likely to get a break, I think, can be uh, very valuable. What was that thing that you learned about the Mona Lisa? Oh, yeah. That the, the Mona Lisa, I didn't realize this. I read a book, Vanish Smile, that the Mona Lisa was just an ordinary painting. But then there was, like, this heist and... Uh, everybody was trying to understand what happened, uh, why the Mona Lisa was stolen. And it was like a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, people, the, 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 people thought Pablo Picasso had stolen it. People thought J.P. Morgan had stolen it. It turned out to just be like a low-level employee had stolen it. It was underwhelming. But the heist gave it so much attention that now it was the most famous painting. So we, everyone thinks the Mona Lisa is the best painting, but it's not really. It's just happened to be uh, the painting that... Uh, got stolen stolen but, in the right place at the right time yeah but the point of that is if you have a thousand paintings you have more chances for one of them to be stolen <laughs> uh you know like like it's it's pretty it's pretty clear that just working forever to get your one piece exactly right is not the best strategy having lots of pieces and then allowing one of them to get lucky is a better strategy there's that famous uh photography class study that was done on this as well right that two groups were split up one was told to take as many photos as they wanted and then to submit one at the end the other group was told that they needed to work on one shot for the entirety of the course when you compare them at the end the group that's taken a ton of shots has just iterated so much more effectively and yeah the the learning by doing thing ties back into what we were saying before yeah. about working hard and deep one particular field sticking at it for a long time like the unsexy stuff what was that thing you looked at um how to become a good athlete if you don't have the genetics oh, yeah, to yeah. be one. Yeah, it was just, I, I was obsessed with sports. I still am obsessed with sports, but uh, I was interested in, uh, but I had no, I had no talent. Uh, I didn't have no talent. I was a, I, I rose to be an okay high school baseball player, but uh, like I, I didn't have, ta I, it was also just a, in, in a county where there were no good baseball players. The lofty heights like, of a small yeah, town like was, high school I was very, baseball player. Yeah. I was very far from being a great, a great player, but there's actually uh, there's actually an interesting way to think about uh, genetics, the genetic edge in sports, which is uh, like if something's really genetic, there are lots of identical twins because identical twins share a hundred percent of their genes. Uh, so there are going to be a lot more genetic identical twins in that sport than even br like fraternal twins or just normal brothers or sisters. Uh, so like basketball is dominated by identical twins. I know it's because I'm a big Stanford basketball fan, and we like suck for 10 years, 
And then we recruit a set of identi- seven-foot identical twins, and we're great again. So it was the Collins twins first, and then it was the Lopez twins. It's like, it's it's it, it works predictably. Uh, it's it saves our our, our basketball program, and uh, in the co- course of basketball, uh, there it's just like dominated to a degree very very few other sports are uh, by identical twins, which shows that basketball is incredibly genetic. In part because height is one of the most genetic traits, and each inch doubles your chances of making the NBA. Uh, which is really cool. Like actually like a six, one person has twice the chance of a six foot person. And then a six, nine person has twice the chance of a six, eight person, a seven, two person has twice the chance of a seven, one person, like throughout the distribution. Uh, That's got to tail off at some that. point or else. Well, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, there's not a big enough sample for like eight, eight foot. It, it, yeah. It, it probably does. Cause I think like beyond a certain point, it's usually a disease, which massively lowers your coordination. So like a thyroid problem, people like who are seven five or above frequently it's a a, a, a thyroid a large a thyroid issue that leads to that level of growth uh, but then there are certain sports like uh <laughs> they're not as exciting as being a basketball player but like equestrianism and diving uh we have a whole chart of them but where there there's like never there have never been identical twin olympic diving and equestrian athletes and if you actually do the math it's pretty clear that that means that the genetics just aren't that big a factor uh, in those sports, uh, which is why a lot of rich people kind of who had uh, kids like me who want to be athletes, they're like, yeah, go into equestrianism uh, and you can become a great equestrian athlete. And it's totally true. There's very little genetics. We know, we know that you're not built for athletics, so let's try and yeah. weasel you into something. But yeah, d- diving is an interesting one too because – uh, Adam Grant, uh, the professor at Warden, who's written a lot of popular b- books, uh, he became a, a very talented diver. Uh, and his coaches told him exactly what the data says, that like if you're nerdy, uh, he wants to be a basketball player. And they're like, you're not talented enough, but you are very disciplined and hardworking and passionate. Uh, so diving's a good sport for you. <laughs> and the data totally, uh, you know, totally justifies that that that's uh, really where you want to put your energy what did you learn about parenting that was so this was something that i'd i'd seen previously in a discussion and then to have it brought up in the data again was so interesting yeah so uh the overall effects of parents are like ways less than everybody thinks uh, and the, the studies of that are twins and adoptees so if you like see you know, identical twins adopted by different parents, they turn out shockingly similar. And then, uh, 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 and then, uh, people uh, adopted to the same parents end up not that similar at all. But then, so like, uh, so, uh, parents in general matter very, very little, but there is evidence that the neighborhood you live in matters a lot. Uh, basically they've looked at tax records and, uh, compared co- and, and people who grow up in certain neighborhoods just do way better. And they've done all this clever math to prove that it's really cause- causally certain neighborhoods are making them better. And the big uh, predictor of that, interestingly, is the adults in that neighborhood. So like adults that fill out a lot of census forms. If, if you like live on a block with adults that live, fill out a lot of census forms, your kid's way more likely to have good outcomes. And you're kind of like, what the hell is, like that's the randomest thing in the world. It's basically like good, responsible adults. Uh, similarly, if girls move to neighborhoods with lots of female scientists, they're more likely to become uh, scientists themselves. Uh, so like one of the lessons I took from the data is you can outsource parenting a little bit. Like when you tell your kids to do something, they're just gonna probably rebel against you. Cause you know, a lot of people think their parents are like the least cool people on the planet, but your friends, they're gonna think they're pretty cool. <laughs> Probably like if I think of my parents, friends, all of them like, yeah, those are, you know, there are periods where I thought my, my dad was pathetic and the biggest loser and whatever. But his friends are always like, yeah, they're awesome. So basically, you just got to you just got to pick friends that you want your kids to turn out to be like and put them in, in front of your kids. Uh, and that you may be shocked by how much of an impact uh, these people are having on your kids. It's so interesting, the fact that the people that you live next door to are potentially going to have a bigger impact on your children than you do. Yeah. 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 It's weird. It's, it's wild. Weird. You don't really... Not even their kids, right? Not even that. It's not, don't worry yeah, about, yeah, oh, exactly. well, such and such is 
son is a he's a bit of a naughty boy and he doesn't really listen in class and it's like yeah but his dad's cool as fuck and he's a millionaire you're like just let little timmy go and play with him a lot yeah it reminds me of i don't know if you saw the book uh if you read the book rich dad poor dad yeah by robert kiyosaki uh, yeah yeah that's exactly that that his life was transformed by meeting this guy who he thought was way cooler than his dad could it not be like uh, cool dad uncool dad that might just be it yeah yeah uh, and yeah, and then and then like that transformed his life. That instead of kind of this traditional narrow path that he thought he was supposed to take of getting a lot of college degrees and like working for the government, he wanted to become an entrepreneur like his uh, his rich dad, his friend's dad. So I didn't think about that. Well, what about that what life. about if his dad had been the rich dad and his friend's dad had been the poor dad? Robert would have probably grown up to be poor because he would have listened to the wrong person. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting to think about. I mean, that, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it, you can't exaggerate the extent to this. You know, some parents definitely do have big impacts on their kids. And sometimes kids do think their parents are really cool. But I think, uh, you know, that I, I think the parents are polarizing figures for kids, whereas like the neighbors tend to be universally uh, kind of cool. Like now, even looking back on it, like the parents in my neighborhood who I know weren't cool, like when I was a kid, I thought they were really cool and cooler than my dad. Like, uh, you know, like one, one guy, he was just such a show off. He wasn't even a good basketball player, but he'd just like constantly be dribbling the ball between his legs and doing like weird moves. And I'm like, now looking back on it, I'm like, that guy was pathetic. Like trying to impress 10 year olds with his terrible basketball moves. But at the time I'm like, this guy's amazing. Maybe that's why I wanted to be a basketball player because I grew up near this guy. This lame basketball guy. What was <laughs> yeah. it? What was that thing about the odds of becoming a celebrity? Yeah, just that uh, there are more independent artists in the top 1% of earners than I would have guessed uh, because it does offer this local monopoly and trying to become an independent, like trying to be a podcast host or a writer or things like that. If you're young and you're willing to do the things that hack your hack luck to your advantage, uh, maybe not a crazy path. So, Yeah. Seth Stevens Davidowitz, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with what it is that you're doing, where should they go? I'll definitely buy Don't Trust Your Gut. Uh, and then uh, my website is sethsd.com. I yeah. love it, man. I appreciate your work. I like the fact that someone who has the uh, data science chops to be able to ask all of the big questions that we want has decided to go and troll through whatever a thousand academic papers and a ton of data to do it the, the the book's brilliant everyone should go and go and check it out it'll be linked in the show notes below uh, and looking forward to seeing what you do next thanks chris